0: Welcome to co-op energy talk. Uh, I'm really excited because today I'm joined by two people. One, our general manager here at Cherryland, Tony Anderson, and then also Craig Bohr who is the uh, CEO of the Michigan Electric Cooperative Association and works on our behalf on state and federal level policy issues. So we're gonna um, dig right in today because we have a, a lot of things going on in Michigan in terms of energy policy. The governor recently gave an address talking about what he would like to see out of Michigan's future energy policy. And um, we kinda wanna dig into some of the specifics that he suggested, talk about how those might affect Michigan in general, but obviously the co-ops more specifically. But before we get into that, I thought I would just take a second to explain why the governor's talking about this right now. And uh, basically Michigan is currently under an energy policy That was enacted in 2008 known as Public Act 295 or PA 295 and that act really had three main arms. One, it set a renewable portfolio standard requiring all of the utilities in Michigan to get 10% of their electricity or their energy from renewables located in the state of Michigan. Second, it added a mandate requiring all of the utilities to incentivize energy efficiency known as the energy optimization or EO mandate. We had to cut 1% of our previous year's kilowatt hour sales every year. And third, it allowed for a choice market. So a market of customers in Michigan who get to choose where they buy their electricity from. They are commercial customers and that ca- that is capped at 10%. So 10% of the commercial customers in Michigan can choose who provides them with electricity. So that policy, which has Michigan has been under since 2008, expires this year. So right now, the legislator, the governor's office are all trying to kind of figure out what's going to be our policy going forward, and that's how we find ourselves where we are today. So to launch us, Craig, can you talk a little bit about what you think the governor is trying to accomplish or what his goals are with Michigan's energy policy?
1: Well, I think there, there are a couple things. Certainly, uh, the principal tenants of what he has spoken about are affordability Uh, reliability, and then ultimately uh, cleaner fuel sources for Michigan. Uh, As uh, many folks know, a good portion of Michigan's generation fleet is going to be retired over the next several years due to uh, the U.S. EPA Clean Air Act standards and that will need to be replaced and in all likelihood will be replaced uh, with natural gas in terms of the fuel of the future. But in terms of, of really where the governor wants to go is is reliability and competitiveness for Michigan in the longer term.
0: And so what kinds of things is he, is he suggesting to get us there?
2: Energy conservation is a big deal with the, the governor. He mentioned the fact that uh, uh, Michigan residents use 40, 38% more energy than, than other states, and I, I felt like that was a little misleading when he said that because on the electric side, we, we use less than the national average. Uh, at Cherryland Electric, we use 700 kilowatt hours a month, and the national average for co-ops is 1,200. If you look at Traverse City Light and Power, they're at 550 kilowatt hours a month. DTE Energy is at 650 kilowatt hours a month, and the national average outside the co-ops is right around 1,000. So I felt as far as electricity goes, the the governor was misleading. Now, if you look at the use of natural gas to heat homes, then uh, Michigan residents are over the national average. I think the DTE quote I got the other day was uh, 47% above the national average as far as the natural gas used to heat. So how how we get uh, energy conservation to translate to generation, he wasn't really clear on.
0: And it and it looks so, like I'd already said, we kind of had, have been operating under a conservation mandate that requires us to, op, to save 1% a year. It looked like what he was prosing, proposing was closer to about 1.5% per year over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is that's not possible on the electric side.
2: It would be really tough for us as a, an electric co-op to... 700 kilowatt hours is not a lot. If, if we shave, uh, he's talking 21% over the next 10 years. If we take 21% off of that, I'm at 540 kilowatt hours. My rates are going to go up. You know, Maybe I could get down to that. I, I, I very much doubt it. But if I did, my rates are going to go up because I have to have a margin. I have to have some money to pay poles and wires and employees to keep the lights on. If he wants reliability, that takes people, and that takes uh, investing in our plant. So I I don't know how I can take 21% off and stay affordable.
0: Craig, do you think the co-ops across the state are in the same situation? Yeah, and
2: I I
1: think the key, really, and what was perhaps most important that was not in the governor's address is really the flexibility that at least we're seeing emerge in the initial dialogue in both the House and Senate whereby the utilities in Michigan will be able to perhaps throttle more or less of really the three principal uh, areas that we talked about. One is fuels in terms of more natural gas uh, uh, and renewables, and then uh, thirdly, the ability to throttle either more or less on the energy efficiency side depending upon the circumstances as Tony referred to. I think that flexibility so that uh, utilities can sort of pick and choose where they want to uh, want to go in those given areas will be very important as we go forward.
0: And Craig, you mentioned something earlier I wanted to ask you to expand on. You talked about upcoming coal plant closures. How is that going to affect the co-ops, or, or what's that going to look like for Michigan? What are we closing?
1: I, I don't think, uh, at least initially, it'll have a significant impact on the co-ops directly, at least uh, on the co-ops and, and the Cherryland family with, with Wolverine Power Cooperative, if you will, in that a good deal of their future uh, commitments are lined up already, but I think in terms of an impact of the state, it'll have a very substantial impact. Uh, as uh, many have noted already, there will be a substantial capacity sort- shortage here that's being predicted by, uh, by MISO, the Mid-Continent uh, Independent System Operator, in which much of this old and in some cases dirty coal will go away, uh, as it should, uh, and it will need to be replaced in all likelihood with natural gas, which is the only fuel that's really uh, able to be built at, at at this point. So will it have an impact on Michigan? Yes. I would argue it, have, it will have a very significant impact, particularly on Detroit Edison and Consumers Energy, where the good portion of that capacity is going to need to be built and where those costs will be borne as we go forward.
0: So you mentioned natural gas, but actually in the governor's speech, he had this series of charts, these pie <laughs> graphs that showed, you know, renewables coal natural gas nuclear and he didn't show an incredible increase in natural gas so what is he saying is going to replace coal because it i mean like i'm looking at charts that show in 10 years from now natural gas going up by maybe nine percent that and 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 we're losing a lot more than nine percent of Mm -hmm. our coal
2: that's where his graphs i think were a little misleading because i think he's putting a lot of his eggs in the conservation bucket but if i i reduce again home heating That's not creating generation. That's not saving generation if I'm lowering the natural gas used by the average residential house. So it's a little misleading. We're going to have to use more natural gas. We're being pushed nationally to to go for more natural gas. So I, I think that's where we're going to go, but I don't know that he totally gets that, or he chooses not to tell that story.
1: Well, I think the other thing that sort of piggybacks into that is certainly I think there's universal agreement that there will continue to be a very significant portion of our needs met by renewables. Certainly, renewables in any uh, case here in Michigan are really viewed as intermittent resources, and for each one of those new wind farms uh, that we're going to build, perhaps or even solar arrays, there has to be some form of backup to, to meet uh, our needs that at times of peak demand. Uh, In all likelihood, that will be exclusively natural gas in terms of the ability to supplement an intermittent fuel like solar or wind.
2: He he did talk about fracking in his speech and and the need to continue to do that and to do that properly. So that is a vague reference to we're going to have more natural gas in Michigan.
0: And so obviously fracking is a somewhat controversial Uh, method method of getting natural gas out of the ground. So is there anything going on in Michigan right now at the policy level that would affect fracking here?
1: There's been a good deal of work that's been commissioned really by the governor's office with the University of Michigan with respect to looking at fracking. But I think the thing that's perhaps the most important uh, overlying factor here is Michigan, the state of Michigan, has been fracking natural gas since the 1970s. So certainly, as Michigan is one of the most experienced states, if you will, with respect to fracking. So I don't expect, uh, at least we're not hearing a lot about legislative changes with respect to additional rules on fracking. But certainly, I think at some point in the future, I think there could be additional dialogue on that, particularly since we're you know, certainly going more, uh, more towards natural gas in terms of uh, our fuel here in Michigan for generation as we move
2: forward. Yeah, If you support affordability, you have to support fracking because that keeps the supply up. As soon as you take the supply of natural gas down, you can look at the history of natural gas and you can see the volatility of that. We need to keep the supply up, and fracking helps do, do
0: that. So aside from the ability to extract natural gas, what other concerns... I mean, it, it, regardless of how, how the pie, pie charts lay out, natural gas is a significant part of our electric energy future and our heating energy future.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: what, what other concerns do we have about natural gas besides the ability to extract it?
1: Well, I think the biggest concern I would have on behalf of really our state and, and Michigan is is sort of bad on natural gas. Uh, historically, it's proven to be one of the most uh, volatile uh, fuels from a price perspective of any. And I think this massive shift towards natural gas could be very interesting as we move forward. The assumption is natural gas will always be at a a level that it is today, very, very competitive. And I think history has shown us that uh, that will not be the case. We will definitely see some spikes that could be uh, problematic, not only for Michigan, but other states that are moving very heavily towards natural gas.
2: Don't we need some natural gas pipelines to to improve the delivery? The infrastructure is largely uh, not Uh, been
1: contemplated for this build out of natural gas it's not uh, we've seen instances here in Michigan where it simply can't accommodate what we have today to the extent we add several thousand megawatts of additional natural gas generation in our state certainly the the infrastructure the highway system that delivers that gas needs to be upgraded as well
0: so we might have some Complexities with extracting it depending on where we end up legislatively. We obviously need to invest in being able to move it around where we need it more. And then we have some potential price volatility. So that's all things to think about when building out a you know, a fifty year plan for an energy portfolio is what's gonna happen with this particular fuel source. And
2: all things to think about when you're talking about affordability. One of the pillars of the governor's speech was affordability. And each of those will affect the price of gas.
1: I think the key with, with anything is to have some diversity in that that uh, basket of fuel resources, if you will, in in terms of still having some coal and nuclear, as an example, to, to supplement natural gas. Certainly, renewables will be part of that as well, but that intermittent supply piece from the renewable side is certainly a concern. We need to continue to have reliable baseload generation, i.e. coal and nuclear in our state, to uh, supplement and really uh, balance out some of that volatility from the natural gas side.
0: But, but but the governor didn't make it seem like that was really a part of this at all. I mean, he, he started out pretty early on saying, you know, oh, I wish, we, you know, we could be talking about nuclear, but that's not going to happen. So nuclear just kind of is where it is. And Really, the goal is to have less and less and less coal, not building new coal, figuring out how to phase out all the existing coal.
1: Yeah, there there will be no new coal built in, in the United States in the very near future, uh, simply not on the drawing board, really due to the fact that none of uh, no new coal plant can meet the EPA guidelines.
2: And we really don't know when those EPA guidelines are going to be effective. They're going to be litigated. What What's your outlook for that?
1: Well, my sense is this. I think the industry, and rightly so, is moving towards one of compliance with EPA's greenhouse gas emission standards as well as uh, some of the other uh, uh, pollutant standards that have uh, been proposed by EPA. I think most people believe that, particularly on the greenhouse gas emission standards for existing coal fired power plants, it will go through a really, really a gauntlet of litigation that ultimately ends up with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, making a ruling on the uh, how valid it is for the agency, meaning EPA, without the, uh, the blessing of the US Congress, if you will, to implement something that significant on our economy. Uh, I think it's anybody's guess. I, I think it's clearly uh, not a, uh, a slam-dunk either way, uh, but it's something that will likely occur four to six or eight years from now. It'll be a long sort of uh, glide slope before we get to something that is ultimately determined by the US uh, Supreme Court in the interim the industry continues to move towards not only compliance with the proposed rule but also with a future that involves much more in the way of natural gas as a generation resource.
0: And when we talk about kind of federal regulations for energy, like one of the things that interests me is, so here you have the EPA who will say, you know, you need to meet this standard. And if I am if I own a coal plant and I say I can't meet that standard, I'm going to shut down. But I don't get to make that decision because there are other regulating bodies out there that, get, that are helping to decide whether the grid can handle that shutting down, right? Which is what happened in the UP. That's correct. So what happens in that situation where I have a coal plant that can't comply and another governmental regulating body such as FERC or MISO that says, nope, you can't shut that down, now what do I do?
1: Ultimately, the, the, uh, the grid operators like MISO in our case are responsible for reliability and it will get litigated either at uh, the FERC uh, or through the courts. Uh, I, I think the one thing that we take for granted in our country is reliability. is something that uh, outside of a couple instances in our immediate history has been uh, a grid that's been based on reliability. And I think as we go forward, The fact that we're losing tens of thousands of megawatts of coal, particularly in the Midwest, is a huge concern. Can we build to replace all of that quickly enough, not only from a standpoint of just a generation to replace coal-fired generation, but as Tony indicated, some of the infrastructure uh, in terms of uh, pipelines, et cetera. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is going to be a heavy lift and one that the industry, I would argue, today uh, is behind in terms of where we need to go.
2: But don't you think there's a scenario where we, we don't keep up with the natural gas generation where MISO um, could come in and say, this coal plant has to stay on, this coal plant has to stay on? Certainly. You, you know, if there's opposition to fracking and there's opposition to building natural gas in different places, we could be forced to run dirty coal plants longer, Do you, don't you think? I,
1: I think that's a possibility. I think that the thing that's ironic is no matter what the fuel source is, there's opposition to it. Uh, Certainly, there's massive opposition to nuclear. Nuclear is something that has proven not only safe, but has a a zero-carbon footprint. The problem with it is cost. I know Detroit Edison, as an example, is contemplating an additional uh, nuclear unit or units uh, adjacent to its existing Fermi plant. The cost estimates on that in rough numbers have been something between $10 and $15 billion and 15000000000 dollars in all likelihood, the only way the company, in this case Detroit Edison, can build something like that is, is with some sort of federal loan guarantees, because if anything goes wrong with a cost at that kind of a number, they're li- literally um, betting the entire company on their ability to bring that sort of a, a plant online in a competitive nature. So. Again, we need to have a balance of these fuels, and I think the, the problem is we're not seeing that. We're seeing this total shift towards coal, and everyone's looking that way without understanding really some of the problems with that, as well as the fact that um, I think history shows we need to have some balance in that fuel mix.
2: Yeah, you, you said total shift toward coal. You meant total meant, shift towards I natural mean, gas. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. That's the, correct. The shift mm-hmm. is away from coal. That's and correct. That, That's a little bit of our uh, affordability issue, too. That's correct and the fact that we need to be
1: realistic about renewables. Certainly they're a part of the mix, but I think uh, the fact that they they are intermittent.
2: Can you tell the audience uh, how our renewable portfolio has grown at Wolverine over the last few years and what we've got on the table? Certainly. Uh,
1: I can talk just generally about the co-ops in general and then maybe uh, uh, take it down a, to, a, to a, a more immediate level with Wolverine. But the co-ops in Michigan in general have about 1, a 1,000 megawatts of load. About 30% of that is, uh, uh, will be mapped with renewables. So certainly co-ops are leaders with respect to the Wolverine family. Uh, The Wolverine family has made three substantial uh, wind commitments uh, in terms of uh, one existing wind farm and two future wind farms in the Thumb area of Michigan that will get Wolverine uh, very close to 300 megawatts of wind uh, on its peak load of somewhere between 800 or 900 megawatts. So a very, very substantial portion of Cherryland's uh, electric generation, if you will, as we go forward will come from renewables, and in this case, wind.
2: And these projects were put in place before any moratoriums were talked about in Huron County. That's correct. So that conversation will not affect the present Wolverine projects. That's correct.
0: People might not actually know the, about the moratoriums in Huron County. Do you want to explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah, lot? there's uh, – Huron County townships are talking uh, – basically they feel like they might have too much wind or enough wind, and they want to take a out because mm-hmm. everybody wants to go to the thumb where it's flat and you've got good wind and you want to put up a – hundreds of turbines, and now they're taking a look and trying to determine if they have enough and how they better manage that. And Wolverine's projects are pre that talk. So as the moratorium gets talked about and decided upon, we don't have to worry about that right now from right. what we have. I
1: think part of it is uh, much of what uh, has been done in here on County in the Thumb was really done uh, in 2006 and 7 and 8. Uh, and what we're seeing in the thumb today is a very different landscape. Right now, there are around 350 turbines that are already on the ground, and there's contemplated somewhere between 700 to 800, so sort of 2x what we did today. Much of what is driving that is really t- two things. One is that's one of the best areas in our state, in Michigan, for wind. But just as importantly, there's a major uh, multi billion dollar transmission line that's been built there to really export that wind out of the thumb, not only to downstate markets, but to, uh, to market energy markets throughout the Midwest.
0: So speaking of transmission, because actually that's, you know, we talk a lot about how do we generate electricity? And we talk all about the investments we need to make there. What kinds of investments is Michigan making in terms of moving it around, right? So trans- what kinds of transmission gaps do we have? Where should we be investing?
1: I think clearly, um In in the downstate areas, we have a very robust, the downstate areas of Michigan's lower peninsula, a very robust transmission grid, particularly uh, east to west in terms of, think of I-96 and I-94, a very robust uh, grid in terms of moving energy around where we are much weaker is the further north we go. And looking at the northern portion of Michigan's lower peninsula and then certainly the upper peninsula of Michigan, we have some very... Uh, deficient areas in terms of where we need additional transmission built in our state to really supplement uh, the generation that's there and the generation that's contemplated as we move forward. The problem with a lot of that is justifying the cost, particularly in rural areas when you look at the Upper Peninsula with 300,000 people, it's certainly uh, one can never cost justify a transmission line of several hundred million dollars or perhaps uh, approaching a billion dollars. That's really the issue. How do we get at the cost issue Uh, The only way we get at it, in my opinion, is to socialize those costs uh, across some sort of a broader footprint that perhaps includes either the Lower Peninsula or or perhaps the Midwest.
0: More regional, yeah.
2: The governor talked a lot about uh, energy conservation in his speech. And one of the comments he made is he wants the energy conservation fees eliminated that are on uh, power bills. But yet he wants energy conservation to grow. Uh, That didn't seem to make sense to me. How how are we going to pay for it if the fees come off?
1: And in a way, it's a, it's a bit misleading because when, when it's on a customer bill, a customer can see that cost to the extent it isn't. They don't know it, even though that cost arguably is still there in the case mm-hmm. of what's going on with many of the utilities. I, I think um, a, as we go forward, there will be certainly a good bit of energy conver- uh, uh, conservation that needs to be done in the form of EO. The key becomes to do it in a cost-effective manner, and in a way that provides real tangible benefit to consumers. I think much of what we did in 2008 with energy efficiency arguably was done in the 11th hour, uh, and and there wasn't as much perhaps thought put into it as there needed to be, and we see that with really the product we got here today. There are certainly some good elements, I think we all agree with portions of what uh, we're doing with energy efficiency. But from a co-op perspective, there are probably ways that we would do things a little differently given our druthers in terms of things that uh, perhaps are a better fit with sort of how we do business.
0: Well, and it seems like some of this goes back to a fact or a little stat you'd put out earlier, Tony, about the difference between natural gas usage and electric uses. Cause in my mind, in my mind the, the problem is that at the electric level, there's some good savings to be had incentivizing commercial customers to install new motors things like that Mm -hmm. and save electricity there's not a lot there when you have a residential home using less than 700 kilowatt hours of electricity Mm -hmm. It sounds like there might be some great savings there on the natural gas and propane side in terms of making homes heating Mm -hmm. more efficiently but we don't that's not our wheelhouse yeah so
2: right now the the state the governor nobody's looking at propane Mm -hmm. there's some focus on natural gas there's focus on electricity but Nobody's doing anything with propane. The propane companies were not brought to the table as far as conservation goes.
0: And a significant portion of, especially co-ops that serve rural areas, a lot of our members are on propane. That's, that's their primary heating source. Because there is no propane natural gas. Propane and deliverable fuels. Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden they don't have a lot of um, resources to access in terms of right. making efficiency well, and improvements. Well, I think part of it homes.
1: is, too, you look at sort of, sort of who we are as electric cooperatives and where we serve. Certainly Detroit Edison and Consumers Energy – serve 90% of the marketplace, and the vast majority of the service territories they serve do have natural gas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's a really sort of a telling example of one size fits all in terms of what was looked at, not giving uh, any, you know, credence perhaps to things like propane in rural areas where uh, there are some very unique differences in terms of the ability for us to serve uh, not only the consumers that live there, but to bring them energy efficiency measures when Uh, On a statewide basis, co-ops have about 40% of the meters that they serve are seasonal. That makes it very difficult uh, when coupled with the, the metric that Tony pointed out in terms of the low sales base. Those two together make our job substantially harder than a utility that's in a downstate, perhaps more metropolitan area.
0: And because we are so heavily residential. T- so we don't get those easy commercial savings either. Well, I don't, uh, I, conservation is important, but there's one other thing that the governor mentioned that I really want us to talk about, and that is having a clean energy standard. And I feel like that's a really important concept. So, what, what, what do we mean when we talk about a clean energy standard?
1: I think the idea behind a clean energy standard is really one of giving the utilities flexibility in a number of areas to meet, as we talked about previously, EPA's greenhouse gas standard. Think of a clean energy standard as really a bucket of things that involve, uh, at least in my opinion, sort of the four building blocks that have been identified by EPA. One is plant efficiency in terms of generating plants and and having greater efficiencies in in terms of how they operate. Uh, And then couple that with things like fuels in terms of this move towards uh, cleaner fuels. Arguably, natural gas still has a carbon footprint, but it's much less than the footprint of coal. And then the other two parts of that uh, of those building blocks are really energy efficiency and renewable resources so those four areas uh, in some way could be part of a clean energy standard the key to that particularly from a co-op perspective is is ensuring that we have the flexibility to take either more or less a certain of those areas to meet our respective needs as an example with respect to plant efficiencies uh, the vast majority of generation that's owned by co-ops is peaking uh, generation. It's not base load, base load capacity. Uh, and it's certainly not coal capacity outside of a very small portion that, that Wolverine has ownership interest in. So the key, key there is going to be, if we do less on the plant efficiency side, can we do more in the way of renewables, energy efficiency, and natural gas to meet some sort of clean energy standard? So think of it as really a, a, a bucket of uh, selections, if you will, Uh, under which uh, the generators in our state can get to a cleaner fuel source ultimately.
2: A good example locally I remind people of is the fact that Traverse City Light and Power is over 80% commercial, while Cherryland Electric Cooperative is 95% residential. That means Traverse City Light and Power has the ability for a lot of EO energy conservation savings on the commercial side. A lot of opportunity there. If you give them the flexibility, they may go, go all in with uh energy conservation and then you walk over to Cherryland, and i may have to go more natural gas more renewables to meet whatever this standard becomes so the key has craig said it does become flexibility because different utilities have different makeup of customers and flexibility is really important it's something we're talking a lot to the legislators about
0: and what's our so you know we kind of have a sense of where the governor's at on this because he just gave his address but what's our Where's the legislature at on this? What's going to happen next?
1: Well, a couple things. Uh, let's talk about both the, the Michigan House and the Senate. On the House side, there's been a package of eight bills that have been introduced by uh, House Energy Chairman Eric Nesbitt. They were in, introduced two, to, two or three weeks ago. Uh, hearings have begun um, on that bill package. On the Senate side, Senator Mike Knoss has had a work group of uh, industry leaders, of which we've been a part of. Uh, that has been ongoing since last June. That group has met on about 12 to 15 occasions over the past four or five months. Uh, Our expectation is that Senator Noss, uh, like Chairman um, Chairman Nesbitt, will release some sort of a bill package here in the next couple of weeks or so, uh, along with a series of hearings. I think then the key becomes sort of how those bills proceed in their respective bodies and then ultimately some sort of uh, Taking the best of both, if you will, in a in a fashion that the governor is agreeable to.
0: And do we think that on both sides? I mean, my my feeling is that on both sides, clean energy standard feels like one point where there's quite a bit of um, agreement that that's absolutely. Yeah, I go. think
1: I think clearly, and again, the overlying um, um, the the overlay to that is really the the EPA greenhouse g- gas standard that will require the utilities to to have uh, those types of uh, parts and pieces, if you will, in their portfolio of assets.
0: Yeah, one of the things I think I hear a lot of kind of uh, people being nervous about is if we get rid of the language of a renewable portfolio standard, will it just end renewables in Michigan? But that's not gonna happen. I mean, we've made long-term commitments to renewables. We have new renewables being built right now. So it's, it's not saying we won't have renewables. It's saying we're gonna create a standard that's more flexible and allows for this, this mix that fits each utility.
2: Right. I think we're committed at Wolverine right now to 18%. That could grow to 21 uh, if we sign some other deals. Uh, We're not going to go down from that. We have that uh, power at a decent price, you know, so we're not going away.
1: And contractual commitments have been made there to supply Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I think the debate on renewables uh, specifically will be around two issues. One, the elimination of the in-state requirement. And I think there's at least in the work group on the Senate side, universal uh, support of that. Um, And then I think, um, uh, secondly, uh, the key right now is there's a provision in the statute that, that only allows the utilities, the big utilities, in this case Detroit Edison and Consumers Energy, to build half of what they need in terms of new renewable resources. I think they very much would like to see that go away so they could build as much as they want themselves obviously they want to own that and get a rate of return on that uh, for the benefit of their shareholders
0: because right now half of what they need they're purchasing from, from others, someone third else. parties yeah. that's yeah. correct
2: yeah and it always comes back to affordability people are gonna get sick of me saying that word over the years but it, it comes back to that if you if you tell me I have to have 20% renewables in my portfolio you're automatically gonna raise the price on that because they know I'm a captive customer and I gotta go, go out and get that. If you give me the flexibility like a clean energy standard where I can negotiate, say I, I can threaten to put in more natural gas if the wind price isn't good, I'm gonna get a better price and the air is gonna be cleaner. So flexibility is big and go Certainly. forward and I, this I think year. from
1: a co-op perspective in one way, I think arguably we'd lean for this sort of 50-50 split. Uh, to keep some competitive forces, if you will, at play in the marketplace. To the to the extent the big two in our state, both Consumers Energy and Detroit Edison, are the only options with respect to renewables, then I think Tony's point really comes into play because, again, our master, the member consumer, is very different than their master, which is the shareholder.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So um, we're, we're really close to the end of our time, but I just wanted to kind of summarize this back up and give everybody a chance to after last, last thoughts, uh, basically where we're at right now is we're expecting a bill to come out sometime this year that will have something that looks a little bit like a clean energy standard. And our priority as co-ops is that we get as much flexibility as possible to add in the right mix of renewables, natural gas, and some kind of energy conservation piece that makes sense for our membership
2: yeah we don't see any one of those going away you know the governor made the comment that he wanted the legislature to get this done by june i don't think it's going to happen by june it's going to be fall it's going to be august september october before we get done so we're looking at a busy six months down in lansing that'll shape our future for several years to come
1: agreed i I think clearly there's no way in my opinion this gets done this summer it's too heavy a lift there's too much in play here for not only the, the consumers we represent, but for the state of Michigan. My sense is we will see uh, a series of bills move both in the Senate and the House with some sort of reconciliation, if you will, uh, sometime this fall to ensure that the administration is supportive uh, with the, with a the goal of getting something done hopefully by you know Halloween, that sort of a time frame.
0: And the, the key for our members is stay involved and pay attention because this is a big year for energy in Michigan and make sure that you are informed about what's going on and advocating on your behalf and on our behalf for the um, things that are important to us going forward. And we've talked about some of those things, reliability, affordability, doing things cleaner and better than we have in the past.
1: Correct. And I think the key, as you indicated, is certainly that engagement, because this is an issue here in Michigan that typically only comes to the legislature every 8 or 10 years. It's not something that occurs uh, every year. And when when it does, it's generally very substantive in terms of
2: what's in the mix.
0: And the stakes are high, because we all all like having electricity.
2: And one key thing to remember is we're also educating a term-limited legislature. A lot of, I don't know, 80 90% of the elected representatives in Lansing were not here in 2008 when we wrote this original law. So we're having to educate them on why it was written and why it should be changed and how it should be changed.
0: Okay, so uh, as we finish it off today, we've been trying to end our podcast lately with a little bit of co-op trivia. So we're going to go quick around the table and tell us one thing about co-ops you think our listeners don't know or should know.
2: May 11th, 1935, FDR signed the Executive Order 7037, which established the Rural Electrification Administration. And I just thought it was interesting to note that it was an executive order. We're so heavy into the executive orders that the current president is putting out. We were born with an executive order. And one year after that, the legislation was passed and the lending program started. And we'll be 80 years old soon.
1: There are 83 counties in the state of Michigan. Michigan's electric cooperatives have a presence in 59 of those 83 counties.
0: That's, that's quite a bit of reach. Uh, winds well, mine's a, a to- totally different direction, but I thought it fit for today. And that is that co-ops across the country own or have long-term power purchase agreements for 15.9 gigawatts of renewable energy, including 10 gigawatts from federal hydroelectric dams. And I think there's a lot of potential still there with hydroelectrics. So we'd like to see that continue to be a part of our renewable uh, mix going forward. Very good. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
2: Thanks.